0: In 1945, Britain was broke, and broken. We'd won a war, but the country was exhausted. People were promised new housing, a national health service, and a fairer society. What became of all that? In a new series of Jam Tomorrow, we take an in-depth look at how British society transformed after the war, from national service to skyscrapers, from coal to corporal punishment. In this episode... We're discussing British migration to Australia. I'm Ross Taylor, and this is Jam Tomorrow. Hello, and welcome to Jam Tomorrow, where we look at how Britain changed after World War II. We know about the Queen, and we know about the music. But what was happening to ordinary people after the war? In this episode, we're delving into the lives of people who decided they'd had enough of Britain and were going to get as far away from it as possible. You can and you will if you set your mind to it. You may arrive with few friends, but soon you'll make dozens. You may blink in the sun at first, but you'll love it. Right now, the government is preoccupied by immigration. Who should come here, who shouldn't, and how to stop them doing it illegally is the reason why we have the Rwanda Scheme. It's part of the reason why we left the EU. But it used to be Britons who were emigrating. Millions of us left in the 19th century for America and the countries known as the Dominions. Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia. Between 1947 and 1981, over a million left for Australia. The country wanted migrants badly. You had to be in good health and under 46 if you were single. You also had to be white and European and the long journey to Australia by boat would cost you only £10, provided you stayed for at least two years. Getting on a ship to sail to a largely unknown future is a scary proposition. Australia worked hard to make it seem like a thrilling opportunity to escape the gloom and class-bound society of post-war Britain. It's not who you are that counts, one ad said, it's what you do. Australia is a thrusting country brimming with action and promise, and keen to welcome anyone with the will to join in. Australians feel they're on top. There's this great feeling, if she can, so can I. So strike out for the best, give them a happy home, all the fun of countless sunny hours in Australia's great outdoors. So your children grasp all the opportunities of higher education, watch them grow with Australia. Catherine Cole is a professor in creative writing at Liverpool John Moores University. But she was born in Australia after her parents emigrated from Yorkshire, and now she has a dual identity as both Australian and British. She's written a memoir, Slipstream, about her life on the two continents. So Catherine, these emigrations were a leap in the dark. They were to a country 12,000 miles away that people had almost always never seen. What made your parents feel confident enough to go?
1: I always ask myself that because they weren't the kind of people I would have thought were traditional migrants in the sense that you sometimes see migrants as being quite courageous people who've had quite a bit of experience traveling around the world or in their own country. And my parents weren't particularly traveled within Yorkshire, let alone England or the UK. So I think What set them on their journey was some kind of massive gathering together, if you like, of all their courage to make that decision to go to a new place in a new country and to make life a lot better for themselves and their kids.
0: So, do you think the immigration was for them, or was it for the sake of, you know, at the time you weren't born yet, but for the kids they were taking with them, your siblings?
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because at the time they had two little kids, my brother and sister. And I think deep down, like many people with children, they're looking ahead or they're certainly bound in where they are at the time. It was, you know, post-war Britain that had been particularly grim in terms of the weather for a number of years. They were in Yorkshire in a mining village and I don't think they saw a lot of prospects or they just felt that it was all a bit much. You know, they'd survived the war, it was rationing, and I just think they thought this was a chance to make life a lot better for the kids, where there would be more sunshine and fresh air and fresh food and so on, I can imagine that's exactly what they were, you know, considering amongst themselves. But I also think for both of them, you know, they'd grown up in this very tight, close Yorkshire community. And I think for them, it was both a a blessing to have that sort of family and community closeness, but I think they also just felt they needed something new and off they went. And it was a long, long journey by boat. What did they find when they arrived? Well, we didn't really talked too much about that moment of disembarkation. We talked about some of the things that they were shocked by, like spiders and the heat and so <laughs> on. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a five to six week journey. And in those days, you know, these were the ship they went on had been a, uh, a hospital ship and trip carrier during the war. So it certainly wasn't a particularly luxurious transit. And I think they would have just been enormously glad when they finally reached Fremantle to, you know, make landfall and get a sense of the country they were going to. But when they got to Sydney, they were met by my uncle because my parents were sponsored by these Australian-British relatives and my uncle, you know, picked them up in a, a rickety old van and drove them to his house in Sydney's southwestern suburbs. And Sydney, I think even now I find it always challenging when I go back to Sydney, the some sort of spatial quality of it compared to, say, here in Liverpool or other parts of England where there are a lot more sort of inner-city terrace houses. I think they would have been really quite shocked by all the quarter-acre blocks that people live on, you know, bungalow houses and big gardens and so on, I think that would have been quite spatially challenging, especially after being on a ship for so long. So I think that was the first thing. And then the rest was just being what really would have constituted an alien
0: culture to them after, you know, their village in Yorkshire. How was Australia different? Because looking at... The kind of things you see written about Australia at the time, there was this talk of a, you know, an outgoing country where you could get things done, and the idea of mateship. You know that, that people were less formal than they were in Britain, and you could talk to people more freely. Is that what they felt? Was that their experience? I think that's the experience for a lot of British migrants.
1: I don't know about my own parents. I think they were quite different in lots of ways. Or maybe you always think that about your own parents, I always thought them as rather apologetic and cautious people. So in lots of ways, that image of Australia as a very go-getter, energetic country, I think would have been not necessarily something they found easy. And I I do understand from research I've read by um, migration experts that for a lot of British, they found this transition from Britain to Australia quite difficult because Australia felt rather brash or emphatic in ways that weren't the case in in England. But I think, you know, my my parents mixed with people who were all from the north of England and often they were much more sort of social people than my parents were. We went to people's houses and they had barbecues and and we sat around, you know, dinner tables and chatted and, and so on. But there was always a kind of social quality to them, whereas my parents were much shyer than that. They didn't do lots of entertaining. And I think they did find it rather difficult to sort of settle into that social way of life and just to be themselves. I think in Yorkshire they would have found it a lot easier.
0: And you stayed with your uncle and then gradually they managed to build their own house, didn't they? And you've written about this and it's like they're trying to recreate Barnsley in a way in their own house. What was that like? (laughs) what they
1: did when they first got there, I think they lived with my aunt and uncle for a year or so, and they did what at the time was quite common. You know, they bought a a block of land courtesy of a loan from my aunt in Yorkshire who actually ended up gifting the money to them. And they built a place on that block of land that was about the size of a suburban garage. And in that place they lived while they built, house and the house was a sort of three-bedroom bungalow house made of fibro, which is asbestos cement and my father and all his friends worked with one another to help each family build their own house in their respective suburbs. When the house was finally built, and it took them some years because my dad didn't want to progress into a new section of the house without paying off the earlier one, he didn't want to have a big debt or a loan, and so the house sort of went up slowly. And so when they finally did move into it, what had seemed like a house three or four times the size of the garage they'd been living in for four years or so, really sort of shrank because they filled it with all these sort of comfy sofas and a lot of things that people gave them or that they bought in, you know, second-hand shops or whatever. But the general feeling of it was of a kind of rather overstuffed English house, you know. <laughs> and I always find that interesting when I went to other friends' houses who had exactly the same design of house. And I'd walk into their house and it felt very... Um, Opened and empty, whereas my parents always felt, you know, there was lots of stuff in it. And a lot of that stuff was, you know, things they'd brought out from England that they were sentimental about. But they also loved to gather bits and pieces, I think, that reminded them a lot of home. So the house sort of slowly but steadily filled up with all of these things. And I didn't quite understand it until I myself came to England as a sort of young woman and started visiting all my relatives and in a way it felt like a recreation of the house they would have lived in in england
0: and as a child you felt australian and you know they clearly didn't feel very australian do you think as they approached the end of their lives did they feel that they'd taken on australianness if you like or did they just feel very very british still
1: i think they were very british and when i say british i think they were very yorkshire and I think that was the thing that made them unique to us as children, I, especially myself and my younger sister, who were born in Australia. And I think more Australian than the older siblings who'd come out. We used to joke in the family if ever either of them got kind of glum or did something odd, we'd go, Oh, what do you expect? They're from Yorkshire, you know. And it was a kind of family joke that you had this sort of split generation of kids. But I think with my parents, they maintained their Yorkshire ness always. Until the day both of them died, they spoke with quite strong Barnsley accent. So it's quite a strong Yorkshire accent, that one. And they enjoyed that. We did have a lot of jokes. Like my father would always say, ee up and ee by gorm and oak to soup, and these sorts of things I associate as Yorkshire terminology. But he wore a cloth cap, you know, he got things sent out from England and relatives in England sent things over so they'd send us kids Beano and Topper and my father loved Pomfret Cake Licorice so he got all these things sent over and it was like a little parcel of England and particularly Yorkshire would arrive in our house every Christmas or for various birthdays and they were very proud of that. My, My dad followed Leeds United Football Club and he maintained this sort of connection with the Yorkshire mining village where they grew up. It was, it was very strong identity, compounded in a way by their accents and so on. So they, they did maintain that and proudly. But when they came back to England, the one time my dad did, my mum came back a few more times after he died, he didn't really settle in at all for the holiday. And I think he did realise on that visit, that he had changed and become much, much more Australian. And when he came back to Australia after the holiday, he did keep saying all the time, I made the right decision. So I think aspects of, of Australia overtook him even as he resisted them. They, you know, they we always went away for a summer holiday by the sea. They made a lot of effort to ensure we did lots of things that were I suppose quintessentially Australian, you know, the, the great beach holiday or going to the beach. They, mind you, would sit in the shade while we all cavorted around in the water. But So they maintained a kind of Englishness at the seaside. But they did make a big effort to ensure we got the best of those kinds of holidays and Australian activities. <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial.
1: The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
0: This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to The Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, British emigration to Australia hasn't stopped. People do still leave. 6,500 British-trained doctors were working in Australia in 2021. One in four nurses working there were trained here, but it's a great deal harder than it used to be, and that started to change in 1972, when a man called Gough Whitlam was elected Prime Minister. Like many Australians, he was descended from British emigrants, but the white Australia policy was coming under attack.
1: Well, Australia had the White Australia policy pretty much from federation around 1901 and it was always a a policy that was effectively to keep Australia white and English speaking. And this went on for an awfully long time. After the Second World War, things started to change, in part because there was a need to increase the migration numbers. There was this famous saying of populate or perish. And there was an expectation we would bring migrants from Europe. There's still a hostility to the idea of, of migrants from China or Southeast Asia or, or, or countries, other countries with black populations and so on. So it was a very racist policy and, and, and it really only changed, I think, in the years after the war, and then particularly towards the sort of reforming eras of, of the late 60s and, and then the 70s with the uh, Labour government of Gough Whitlam. But even after the war, when there was a great push to increase migration, the bulk of people who were coming were from the UK, and there was also a scheme to encourage people from the Baltic states. They were called the Beautiful Balts because they were fair-skinned and Often blonde, and there, when you look at documentaries, we see the facing of these people because they met that kind of racist image of of white Australians that you know we were aspiring to, and this did slowly change over time because after the war, as well as people from the Baltic states, you know, a lot of our um, migrants came from Italy and Greece and former Yugoslavia, and so you started getting a much more diverse population coming through in the 50s and 60s, and then, of course, the laws were changed in the late 60s and then in the 70s, and and Australia became far more multicultural and accepting of multiculturalism with the Whitlam immigration reforms, and that meant that migration was either for people who were fleeing and refugees... Fleeing regimes and so on, or people who were required migrants, skilled migrants, or family reunion. So I think at that point, the notion of a white Australia really did
0: sort of die out around 1975. Gough Whitlam had been elected after a rousing campaign with the slogan It's Time. Whitlam made it clear that Australia was going to be a lot more selective about who it let in. In 1974, he gave a speech at Adelaide Town Hall, voiced here by Brian Castlekey.
2: Australia will continue to welcome migrants who satisfy the humane criteria which we laid down last year.
0: We believe, however, that it is pointless, indeed damaging, to bring large numbers of people to Australia unless there are jobs for them. The new Department of Labour and Immigration will have the expertise to ensure that migrants can gain employment. The days of cannon fodder are past. The racist white Australia policy would end. Not only that, but people would no longer be expected to assimilate in the same way, to adopt Australian culture and suppress their own. We do not want migrants to feel that they have to erase their own characteristics and imitate and adopt completely the behaviour of existing Australian society. We want to see that society enriched by the cross-fertilisation that will result from migrants retaining their own heritage. The old approach of individual assimilation is no longer government policy. We are concerned with the integration of ethnic communities into the broader Australian society. By strengthening those communities, we strengthen the whole society. It was a vision of what came to be known as multiculturalism. At the same time, Whitlam started to give First Nations Australians more control over their own lives. He started an Aboriginal land rights bill and the practice of taking Indigenous Australian children away from their parents came to an end. Australia now has a strict migration policy. It's points-based, meaning that people with skills the country needs are first in the queue. 10 years ago, it launched a campaign aimed at people arriving in small boats called No Way, You Will Not Make Australia Home.
2: The Australian government has introduced the toughest border protection measures ever. It is the policy and practice of the Australian Government to intercept any vessel that is seeking to illegally enter Australia and safely remove it beyond our waters. If you travel by boat without a visa, you will not make Australia home. The rules apply to everyone, families, children, unaccompanied children, educated and skilled. There are no exceptions do not believe the lies of people smugglers. These criminals will steal your money and place your life and the life of your family at risk for nothing. The message is simple. If you come to Australia illegally by boat, there is no way you will ever make Australia home.
0: And that's why British politicians have come to see Australia as a role model when it comes to both legal and illegal immigration. The days when you could migrate to another continent for the price for a weekly supermarket shop are over. Catherine Cole now lives in Liverpool. I asked her if she thought she'd ever go back to Australia.
1: I like the idea of sort of moving in a way between places. I've never felt nationalistically Australian, if that makes sense. I, I think having grown up in such a Yorkshire household and feeling very, very British on one level... Sort of, I mean, what I'm describing, I suppose, is the experience of numerous children of migrants and wouldn't even have to be just British. I had a lot of friends at school from Lithuania or Spain or Czechoslovakia or all of these different countries. And I think we all felt very much the same that we've torn between our country where we were born, Australia, and the country our parents had left because it becomes a kind of mythologised place because you're hearing so much from your parents about what they did as children and you're constantly wondering what your life might have been like had you stayed. This is also fed by all these kinds of parcels or cultural links that you get with, with the former country. As for me now, I've I've travelled to and from England a lot before I took a job at a university here. And the very first trip I came, I was shocked. I rode a moped around, you know, a little 49cc motor scooter. And when I rode into um, Royston near Barnsley where my parents lived, I kind of felt this weird existential moment of, of coming home and seeing the signs and hearing voices that were very similar to my family's, and and that was a strange moment. And I've had that ever since, really, this feeling that whenever I go across the Pennines or go to Wakefield or somewhere, I'm kind of back in this parental country in a way that I'm still negotiating in terms of my own identity. But I rather like the idea of moving between places. If I can spend time between the two countries, I'd be very happy because... I get a lot out of being in England, especially teaching at a British university. It's always interesting and fun, and the students are great. But also the things I miss, and I I talk a bit about in that book, Slipstream, uh, the sound of magpies, the you know kookaburras, the heat, the beaches. You know, there are things that are very casual and fun about the place. And in the middle of a Liverpool winter up here, it's it's very seductive to just sit thinking about having a glass of white wine on a beach and watching the sunset, you know, over the harbour. <laughs> the harbour
0: and the beach. Even though the vast majority of migrants arrive in Britain by air, in the mythology of British migration, we still think about the sea, about small boats landing in Kent, about ships leaving Liverpool docks, about passages to India. Maybe we like to romanticise it, to associate it with a leap into danger and the unknown. Whereas in fact, much of the migration into Britain now is to do a job that can't be filled, to study for a few years or to join a relative who's already here. And as Catherine found, migration isn't always forever. Sometimes you come back, or your descendants do. She's one of around 87,000 Australians living in the UK. The £10 POMs didn't just change Australia, they're changing Britain now. I'm Ros Taylor, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of Jam Tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, have you listened to Series 1? Just search Jam Tomorrow in your podcast app. Find out what Britons wanted after the war and whether we got it. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ross Taylor. The producer was me, Jade Bailey. Music was by Dubstar and artwork is by Jim Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Eliza Davis-Beard and Brian Castlekey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.